Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. No, it's just torture and murder. No plot, no characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. A toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, and this week I have a very special guest joining me for a very special episode on what turns out is one of my favorite movies and one of his favorite movies, and I'm going to introduce that very special guest to you in just a couple seconds. But first, I just want to mention that we are now currently available on every major podcast platform. You can check out our website through Acast, and the links to all the different various platforms that we are available on will be there. And just follow the link to your podcast platform of choice or go to your podcast platform of choice search for the cult film companion and hopefully we'll pop up there if we're not on your uh, preferred platform reach out to me on twitter at cult film comp c-o-l-t-f-i-l-m-c-o-m-p or shoot me an email at the cult film companion at gmail.com. We are a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse from articles about topics that you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling, start listening. You could follow any topic as specific as you would like, from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians. Whatever your bag may be, Newsly has you covered. And they have podcasts as well. You can explore trending podcasts from over 50 different countries. Our podcast is, of course, there as a featured podcast. Download and use Newsly for free now, www.newsly.me, or from the link in the description. Use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M. Drop the I, pop in a one, cult film, and you get a month-free premium subscription. We are also a proud member of the Bron- Blind Knowledge Collective, www.blindknowledge.com, that has podcasts and videocasts from all over the world about all sorts of fun and interesting and entertaining topics. Whatever that particular itch is, Blind Knowledge will provide that scratch to soothe you. So check out all the various creators where the creators come first and they do it for their audience. So please check out all the various creators at the Blind Knowledge Collective. And of course, as you probably know, because it's right there in the episode title, today we are covering Videodrome, one of my favorite movies from one of my favorite directors, David Cronenberg. And joining me to cover this absolutely brilliant movie is Mr. Preston Fossil, who is the managing editor editor of Daily Grindhouse, and the author of Landis, The Story of a Real Man on 42nd Street. Preston, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Please just 
just give us a quick um, introduction to the audience and uh, let us know all about The Daily Grindhouse and your book. <clears throat> so Daily Grindhouse is a website dedicated to uh, exploitation, cults, and underground cinema. Uh, we strive to be what Bloody Disgusting and Dread Central are for more broad appeal horror films. We like to cover stuff that flew under the radar or that was a little bit more niche back in the day and kind of uh, shine a light on it and give it its uh, just due and bring that kind of stuff back into the spotlight. Uh, Landis, my book, is a, a very similar ethos. Uh, Bill Landis was a uh, magazine founder back in the 1980s. He founded this uh, fanzine called Sleazoid Express that started out as a one-sheet publication and then eventually expanded into a multi-page actual uh, periodical. And he lived in uh, New York City and was hanging around all of the Grindhouse theaters on 42nd Street and would literally see every single movie he could and then write them up in this, in this zine. And a lot of these movies were kind of uh, fly-by-night, under-the-radar stuff. They would play for one week and then disappear from theaters. And he was one of the only people covering this stuff. And uh, led a very strange and very fascinating life and unfortunately passed away relatively young. And it was my goal in writing this book not only to bring his writings uh, back into the public eye and uh, pay homage to the groundwork that he laid as a writer, but also to finally tell his complete life story. That's awesome. Um, I got to be honest, when I first heard Landis, I thought... Uh, <laughs> uh max landis or john landis and uh, i'm glad i'm glad that uh it's neither one of those uh, especially not max uh john landis is yeah uh, yeah there's some uh yeah if you want to go down a rabbit hole of disgusting uh look up max landis and if you want to go down a rabbit hole of disturbing and very questionable uh movie releases check out the twilight zone movie and the john landis directed section uh that's a terrible horrible story and talking about terrible horrible stories uh david cronenberg um not horrible in the in the quality sense just kind of more of the horrific um kind of movies that he's he's he was best known for in the early part of his career uh, very much um, came up in the Canadian film industry with movies such as Scanners, Rabid, and The Brood. We're talking about his first uh, major studio release, and we're talking about Videodrome, which is not a movie that is very easy to describe to people. If someone asked me, what is Videodrome about? I would simply tell them that you need to watch Videodrome and you need to kind of form your own opinion about it. Videodrome uh, was written and directed by David Cronenberg. It was produced by Claude Hereau. Um, original music by Howard Shore, uh, who was a longtime Cronenberg collaborator and um his music just starts at the very opening over the universal credits. It's a very ominous kind of droning noise, and it's absolutely beautiful and gives you kind of a a, a wink or a nod at, at, at what is to come. 
The main cast of Videodrome is uh, Max Wren, portrayed by James Woods. Uh, Nikki Brand, the love interest, portrayed by Deborah Harry, best known as the lead singer of Blondie. We have Harlan, portrayed by Peter Dvorsky. And we've got Dr. Brian Oblivion, portrayed by Jack Crelly, and Bianco Oblivion, portrayed by Sanja Smits. And another character worth noting is Barry Convex, portrayed by Les Carlson. The shooting for Videodrome began in Toronto in October 19th, 1981, and wrapped up in December. The budget for Videodrome was the highest for Cronenberg at the time with $5.9 million, but unfortunately only grossed $2.1 million at the box office, but has since become, it is almost eclipsed cult appeal. It's almost a movie that needs to be seen because for a movie that came out in 1981, I can't think of a movie other probably than something like Brazil that has been so prolific and so ahead of its time and kind of um, prophesizing what media and entertainment has become. Um, uh, but Preston, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the movie Videodrome? When was the first time that you saw this movie? So the first time I saw this, I would have been about 16, 17 years old, and I grew up in a uh, town in Oklahoma called Broken Arrow, and whatever image comes to mind when I said that is probably right. Uh, It was a very small town at the time that I was there. Now it's the fourth largest city in the state of Oklahoma because they uh, put through a turnpike while I was in high school that directly connected to Tulsa and like it exploded overnight. But at the time, it was like a, you know, main street, two lanes. You pass by a, uh, a smoke shop on the side of the road and like kids would hang out behind the smoke shop after school smoking cigarettes. And it was just this very kind of rural, small town uh, on the brink of uh, booming in the early 2000s, late 90s. And because it was such a small town, it was just kind of an acceptable social activity that you would hang out at the video store after school. And we had a Hollywood video there that had this section in the back called the cult section. And it was kind of at every different Hollywood video's discretion what went into the cult section. And it was just sort of this catch-all for the movies that they didn't know where else to put and the stuff that they probably thought was maybe a little too intense to go in the appropriate genre section, but they still wanted to carry. Like, that's where they stuck uh, Clockwork Orange and Blue Velvet, uh, Freaks, uh, and then just random stuff. Like, that's where they had the Elvira movie, Amazon Women on the Moon. And I had made a goal for myself to rent and watch every single movie from the cult section. And one of my weekend rentals one week was Videodrome, and this was my introduction to David Cronenberg, and I was just completely blown away by it. Uh, Before we moved to Broken Arrow when I was 12, uh, we had lived in St. Louis before. My dad was a uh, computer uh, engineer and systems analyst for Southwestern Bell, and just the aesthetics of this movie look like the first part of my childhood. 
uh, I tell people that Videodrome is a comfort watch for me, and they look at me like I'm completely bonkers, <laughs> but it's just, it brings back such warm childhood memories for me, seeing those early parts of the film, especially in Harlan's lab. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's how I first came to see Videodrome, and that's how I first uh, came to appreciate David Cronenberg. Yeah, so the inspiration, I, a couple of things that I want to mention. I, I love the story about the Hollywood video having the cult section because one of the things that I'm, I'm constantly bringing up on this show is that one of the elements, because it's so hard to define a cult movie, one of the elements that I always I, I come back to is that if I was in the marketing department of a, a movie studio, a cult movie is not something that I would want to market because it would be... Uh, you'd never be able to sum up what kind of movie it is. And so many of the trailers for a lot of the, the movies that I cover here on the show are either misleading or give away too much. Um, but it's not something that I would want to market because, like you said, it's not an easy thing to categorize. Um, I mean, where would I put Videodrome? I suppose... Sci-fi horror, uh, you could do, it's it's a drama, but, you know, just having, I mean, I miss, I, I, I kind of wish, because I worked at a, a mom and pop video store, and we didn't have a cult section, and um, one of the things that I was allowed to do was I was allowed to, to choose a couple of the movie, you know, a couple movies here and there to, to put into the store. I mean, I'd bring in some some cult movies, but then I'd have to categorize them, and I just wouldn't know where exactly to put them. I mean, uh, one of the movies that we I just discussed last week is a movie called Highway to Hell, which um, I I mentioned on the show that I I felt ripped off because it, it was in the horror section, and it's not really a horror movie. And a movie like Videodrome or a movie like Brazil, it's it's almost uncategorizable, and I, I love, I, I, I think that's why every video store, I mean, they're not really relevant now as they used to be, but I mean, just having a, a cult section, um, I mean, it, it's invaluable, and discovering this movie, uh, the, the, in, the inspiration came to David Cronenberg because at uh, late at night, he was able to pick up kind of like weird tv transmissions i mean so we're going back to the 70s here weird tv transmissions coming in from like buffalo new york and it, it was showing kind of um some weird stuff and he kind of it's almost like the channels between the channels i mean if you're younger you're not going to remember that when you had bunny ears or a uhf dial you could pick up some kind of weird transmissions depending on where someone was broadcasting from but this movie, it starts out as a, as the director, um, James Wood's character, is the president of um, Civic TV, which is a cable station. And this was at kind of um, the infancy of cable uh, as we know it. And I guess Civic TV was inspired by City TV that was a a cable station in Canada that Cronenberg was familiar with that started to show um, 
some uh, lowbrow softcore porn. Um, it kind of reminds me of growing up with the USA Network when they would do shows like Up All Night and they would show like uh, sophomoric comedy soft porn and that was just kind of like, you know, um, just the uh, the precursor to, you know, actual pornography. But um, throughout the course of this movie, he, he becomes obsessed with this show Videodrome um, which is essentially, he kind of sums it up, is just like, there's no plot, <laughs> there's like no characters, it's just violence, and that's it. Um, and he becomes obsessed with it, and, you know, as we talk about the movie, we'll, we'll talk about how he becomes, um... I mean, there's so many different themes and things going on here. Um, it's kind of like Marshall McLuhan, uh, best known. I mean, he he's uh, the medium is the message is probably what he the work that in quote that he's best known for. But I mean, he dives a lot deeper into it about how we're all becoming networked and connected through technology and media and i mean for a movie that came out in 1981 i mean every time i watch this movie i kind of get something new out of it and i i wonder what um did you recently rewatch this movie preston uh yeah as a matter of fact the most recent time i've seen it was in december uh the uh, the alamo draft house in houston uh, invited me to uh, host a screening of it uh, as part of the uh, launch of Landis. And so that, that was a really cool experience to actually get to uh, host a screening of Videodrome and then see it on the big screen for the first time. So if you had to describe, how would you sum up this movie if you had to? I mean, in a, like, in a very bare bones kind of way. I mean, could you do it and like do the material justice? It's difficult because, like you said, it kind of shifts between being different things, and it's like sort of this Manchurian Candidate-style political thriller at one point, and then it's a sci-fi horror movie, and then it also gets kind of existential and heady with, like, these philosophical themes. It's it's really this sort of, like, all-things-to-all-people kind of production. Uh, I know that it had a very rushed and very unconventional production, uh... I don't know if it's still like this, but at the time that Cronenberg made it, there was like this kind of window in the filmmaking year where uh, people in Canada could invest in film productions and then write that off on their taxes. And if I recall correctly, one of the big financiers of this was actually a Toronto area dentist. And so, you know, people would get their money together at this one particular time of the year, find filmmakers, throw their money at them and say, you know, make me a movie. And so David Cronenberg had this narrow window to make the movie in. And when he started filming this, he, he actually didn't have a completed script. And he was like writing this on the fly. And I've never gotten my hands on any actual physical script copy, but the, the closest I've come is they came out with a tie-in novelization after the movie came out. And reading the novelization, you can really see these different ideas that he had because the person writing the book was writing the book as they were filming the movie. 
and so stuff starts changing and gets dropped and like characters physical descriptions change midway through the book and not in this intentional kind of like dreamlike way but because they were doing it based on what they had available to them and you know a lot of movies produced that way I can see turning out as real shit shows and it's really a testament to what a great filmmaker Cronenberg is that he was able to write and produce this thing on the fly and it came out as good as it did. Yeah, I was actually I I rewatched the movie. I owned Videodrome on the beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray and I listened to the the audio commentary with with Cronenberg. Um he's one of the few filmmakers that I genuinely enjoy um listening to talk about his movies. Um, I love the fact that he's willing to talk about them, but I also love the fact that my other favorite filmmaker, the other David, David Lynch, ultimately just refuses to talk about the meaning behind his movies. And I just, I love that. Um, but as a, as a, as a selfish fan, I kind of want to know more. So I, I, I like that Cronenberg's willing to talk about that. And he said that yeah, he was constantly rewriting scenes. He would go into sets and come up with ideas. And he said that he never, he had never worked like that before. Um, like stuff like he had always kind of had everything kind of well, either well scripted and, um, you know, shots um, planned out and, he said that, yeah, with Videodrome, it was very much kind of, he almost like improvised a lot of the movie. Um, there's three different endings. There was three different scripted endings for this movie. Uh, you mentioned the novelization, I believe, was by Dennis Etchison um, that came out. And yeah, there's um, one of the most, the, one of the scenes that, that got brought up the most in my research was there's a particular scene that is in the novelization, but not in the movie. It was scripted, and they did test some of the special effects, but it was it was scrapped. Was that there was a scene where uh, James Woods' character Max Wren is um, in the bathroom, and he's kind of he's standing at his bath bathroom sink, and he starts filling up the bathtub with water. And then he walks over to the sink and he looks into the mirror and it kind of turns into a hallucination of it, the mirror becoming a TV screen. And this is, um, I guess, would probably be halfway through the movie when the hallucinations start. And um, the, the big set piece of this scene was that a huge television set was going to come out of the water of the bathtub. And uh, this, this scene was scrapped at the last minute like i said they they tested some of the special effects to see if they could um they could do it but ultimately was scrapped um we're kind of uh, please oh no i was just gonna say yeah because the, the the issue that they ran into was that the tv was supposed to turn on and then Debbie Harry was going to be on the tv and talking to him while it's like bobbing there in the water and they could get the TV, you know, gutted just as a prop in the water safely. But in order to actually have it playing something, they would have to have it plugged in. And, of course, you know, that would be a disaster. And so they found this, like, some kind of gel, this clear gel that looks like water on screen but doesn't conduct electricity. 
so that they could have the TV in this gel actually plugged in and showing pre-recorded footage of Debbie Harry. And then it turned out that like one gallon of this stuff was something like $200 and it just would have been like super prohibitively expensive. And I know they were like experimenting with gutting the TV, wrapping all of the circuits inside in uh, plastic and then reassembling it. And it just turned out to be too prohibitively expensive and time consuming for him to do this. Yeah. And I mean, talking about, I mean, there's so much of, it's kind of surreal because you're watching, I mean, I've never, you you were fortunate enough to see this movie on the big screen. I was not even born yet when this movie came out. So I never had the opportunity to see it on the screen. So I'm always watching this movie on my TV screen. And then there's always, I mean, a lot of the shots have either a TV screen or some screen in there. And so you're watching TV on a TV. It's, it's a weird kind of thing. And one of the things that I, that I got out of this particular rewatch when I was preparing for this episode, um, a character that I kind of always, uh, wrote off or didn't really invest as much into, was Professor Brian Oblivion, and for some reason, his character really resonated with me on this particular rewatch. He was very, I mean, this character is very much inspired by Marshall McLuhan, who talks a lot about um, media and um, just the, you know, how how influential it is and how, I mean how important well we make it so important in our lives um you know tv people will stare at this this box for hours and hours um but one of the things that particularly resonated with me was he has a line where he says i won't appear on tv i won't appear on tv unless i'm on a tv you remember that scene? It's a talk show scene. Yeah. It's a talk show. Sh- it's, it's a t- your typical talk show, and we've got Deb- uh, Debbie Harry, and we got James Woods, and we got the host, and then we have a TV screen with Brian Oblivion on it. And I love the fact that he won't appear on TV unless he's on a TV in that TV show. But one of the things that really resonated with me is that he says. But of course, Brian Oblivion is not my real name. That That is my TV name. And soon we will all have TV names. And that is so prolific for social media now where we can, we can come up with our own identity, our own names, and we could create Facebook pages and we could create Tumblrs and Twitters and Instagrams and we can create our own identity on a social media platform. I mean, I mean, if that's not prolific, I don't know what is. I mean, we're talking about a movie that came out 40 years ago. I mean, that's amazing to me. That just, like, blows my mind. And his daughter has the cathode ray mission, which is basically treating television like a religion, which is just, like, another thing that I never really got upon earlier viewings it's just amazing to me that, I mean, we do have people that will, they they kind of 
they plan their lives around. I mean, it's not so much now with streaming, but at a certain point, certain people wouldn't make plans during certain times of the day or wouldn't go do things on certain nights because that was their, their TV show of choice. Like, you know, don't disturb me between 8 and 9 on a Wednesday because I'm watching such and such. I mean, to me, I mean, we... We have turned, and I, I don't know if it's because of streaming now, but we have people binge-watching shows. They'll spend the entire day, you know, 12-plus hours watching television, and it's become a religion for some people. Um, but that's just one of the things that I, I picked up upon this first viewing. Um, I initially was drawn to this movie because I liked the body horror elements and, and, and Cronenberg in his early career was, you know, just the king of body horror movies. I mean, the fly rabid scanners, um, the brood it's, but I mean, to me, it's almost an, it, I, I still love the effects and I, I will always take practical effects over, um, CGI and in particular the special effects here are handled by Rick Baker who is just an incredible practical effects designer I previously talked about him when we did an American werewolf in London no we didn't do that we did the howling I'm sorry I'm getting my movies confused here but um but the practical effects in this are amazing we have pulsating TVs and we have Betamax teeth that that will bite you. I mean, it's just what what are elements about this movie that you find that particularly I mean, you mentioned why it's comfort a comfort movie for you, but what what other elements of this movie do you think make it such an underrated cult favorite now? It's something that, going back to something that you said, it's really amazing because even though the movie itself has not changed, it has aged well with media in the meantime. Uh, you, you watch movies and other uh, stuff from around this time, and there was this weird anxiety around TV in the early 80s that this taps into and the shock treatment taps into. And then you flash forward, and uh, you know there's this, this concern in the movie that media has become too violent and that it's we've reached a tipping point as a culture with depictions of violence in the media and that this is going to have these damaging effects on the minds of the people consuming it and that was kind of the uh, flashpoint for video games in the 90s with uh, the scare around Mortal Kombat and games like uh, what was it Doom and Harvester and Night Trap and then Later, that kind of got brought back up post-Columbine, where people were looking for a scapegoat, and there was that you know period where people were thinking, well, maybe it is video games after all. And then, exactly like you said, this predicts the coming of the internet in so many ways. And uh, the, the cathode ray mission is something that jumped out at me on my most recent viewing, because it's almost like an internet cafe. Yes. And <laughs> if 
Yeah, if TV and Videodrome can be read in 2020, 2022 as a metaphor for the internet, then all of these people congregating to tap back into the matrix and like find connection with one another by watching television all in one place communally is like people going to an internet cafe and everybody logging on together and all these people who aren't interacting with one another in the same place but are interacting with other people on the other side of that screen. And so it's like, no matter how old this movie has gotten, it's really stayed, uh, you know, relevant and of the moment. Right, because I think it deals with underlying issues that are always going to be relevant. Issues of, of violence. I mean, that's, I mean, unfortunately, we're never going to have, we're, we're just never going to be, like, violence is going to be a part of our, of the culture of the world, unfortunately. And that's, I mean, we can't, we can't point a finger at one piece of media that's going to influence violence because before there was media, quote unquote, there were, there, there was violence before media. So, I mean... Unfortunately, I mean, that's just something that we have to come to terms with. And I think, I mean, this movie is so interesting in, in, in terms of what media is capable of doing to people. And I think that while I, you know, while I just made this whole, I got up on my soapbox and talked about violence in, in media. But I mean, at the same time, this movie is showing I mean, quite literally, Max becomes programmed and then reprogrammed throughout this movie to either be an advocate for Videodrome or to be um, an enemy of Videodrome. And he's programmed through through media, quite literally, in this movie. Uh, video cassettes are inserted into a vaginal crevice in his stomach. I mean... You can't get more on the nose than that as far as being programmed by media. I mean, it's almost... But at the same time, this movie isn't... I don't think it's really condemning media. I think it's more of just... It's kind of like a warning of the potential of what could happen with media. And I think that that comes through, again, with um, Brian Oblivion talking about how he was one of the creators of Videodrome and he wanted it to be more of an interactive media center, kind of like um, what we, like you said, like what the internet now is of us talking to people, one another. You're, are you in Texas right now? Yeah, no, yeah, Dallas specifically. So you're in Texas, I'm in Rhode Island, and here we are, we're talking over the internet right now. And so I, I think it's so interesting that we have kind of, like, we could see the potential here. And one of the other things is that, and I think this is very interesting, Cronenberg um, uh, has a quote about how he always wants... Uh, more specifically in his earlier movies, he always likes to redesign the human body. Um, and, and and I think he he does it very well in a lot of movies. He deconstructs the human body in The Fly. And in this movie, he kind of... He's showing that technology is the, like the next level of evolution. 
and his comments were about body modifications um more so now than actually when this movie was made but he was talking about how how many people now have uh hearing aids that are basically little computers that you put into your ear so you can hear better or people that have um heart transplants i mean you're you're working with somebody artificial limbs now um how technology is the next step in evolution and we're integrating more and more we're integrating technology into what is basically a natural body i mean it's that's where the horror from body horror comes from i think that just like these changes to your body whether you willing them willingly make them or not um is something to be feared i guess I'm not really sure, um, but uh, are you a body horror fan in general? Not in general, no. It's, it really squicks me out as somebody who's been uh, chronically sick for a lot of his life uh, and who's been involved in a couple of uh, car accidents that have landed him in the hospital. It's, it's a little too close to home for me. Mm. I, I like David Cronenberg as a director, and, you know, that's his forte. But uh, beyond David Cronenberg, I'm not so much of a body horror person. A little, little too real. Yeah. Um, I, I myself have a, um, had a, a, a blood disease, and um, I actually ended up having to have a, a hip replacement which my godson thinks is is super cool because he says I'm kind of like part robot, and uh, you know, <laughs> to me, I you know, I'm glad that he thinks it's cool, but you know, the fact that I've got like this weird disc in my 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 right leg now is you know I'm lifting my leg right now up and down, but it's because it's because there's artificial parts in my body. It's yeah, you know, sometimes it does these kinds of movies hit a little too close to home. Um let's um let's talk I mean we talk somewhat about the plot. I mean, the plot it's hard to sum up because unless you're going beat by beat with this movie and doing like a running commentary, it like you said, it's kind of it jumps around and it doesn't help the fact that halfway through we find out that, you know, Max is hallucinating. So we don't know if what we're seeing is real or not. I mean, we kind of get the unreliable narrator motif, but the only reason he's unreliable is because he's hallucinating. And, um, but the characters, um, I think there's a, I think this is, if not his best, this is definitely one of my, well, it's one of my favorite James Woods performances. I think he's just excellent as Max Wren. Um, but what, any thoughts about the cast in general? It's a really great cast. And uh, th this is something that I always love talking about when I talk about Videodrome, because unless you really dig into it and listen to those commentaries and read about the production, this is something that doesn't tend to come up a lot. But uh, originally, Debbie Harry was actually in the movie a lot more than she is. And it's it's interesting listening to her commentary on the Criterion Collection. You can tell that uh, Debbie Harry has not actually watched this movie in like 40 years because she keeps <laughs> uh, referencing the version of the movie where she's in it more. And originally, she was supposed to be part of those hallucinations. And you were she was going to be appearing to Max in his apartment and in the optical shop and in the limousine. 
and uh, David Cronenberg ended up editing around all of those scenes, and it's fun to watch now and try to see where he cut around her. But there was supposed to be this ambiguity when she says that she's going to Pittsburgh, and then she pops back up. And it was supposed to be this bigger reveal later on that he'd actually been hallucinating her this entire time and that she actually got killed when she went to Pittsburgh. And uh, so, so, so it's, it's fun to try and pick out those parts of the movie where she was originally supposed to be. And I, I think she does well with the material. I don't know if David Cronenberg cut her out because he didn't uh, like her performance or if he just decided that the... Uh, the plot was was better with her not being in these hallucinations, but uh, I think she does a pretty good job with the, the material she has and with what the role calls for. And uh, yeah, I agree. This is one of James Wood's better performances. Uh, he's always uh, at the top of his game when he's playing these these slimy, weasley, nasty types. The other performance of his that really jumps out for me is Casino. Mm. And uh, yeah, he just does fantastic with the, with the material here. Yeah, it's very interesting to me because I remember I, one of the first times that I watched this movie, I thought she was going to be more integral in the plot, but she kind of disappears about halfway through. And then she she kind of turns up at the end, and she turns up in a couple hallucinations. Um, yeah, but I, I thought that she was going to be more of a mainstay throughout the movie. And like you said, unfortunately for me, I mean, upon watching this, the ending, well, the ending that we got and the endings that were were talked about, it's still very ambiguous to what is happening, what is real, what is a hallucination, because I don't know if it was Cronenberg's intent to kind of disorientate the audience. Um, but this movie, this movie, you know... I, I could see it being very confusing to certain people and also very disorientating to certain people because it almost it, it not, the more that I the, that I read about the background of this movie and the fact that he was constantly rewriting um, and he didn't have something like the luxury of um, I mean if you, you're a Stanley Kubrick fan you know that he the man was a perfectionist and was constantly rewriting scripts and reshooting and doing take after take after take for for months and um you know it, it but in the end you can't really tell in the end product this movie the now that i know some of the background about like how he like you said he was operating on this very tight window um canada has a very interesting uh yeah tax incentive kind of thing to help promote the arts and that's how Cronenberg got a lot of his um movies produced but if he's improvising behind the scenes with a movie that is as complex as this um as much as I love this movie I can't deny that at times um upon first viewing I totally didn't get it you know I was a teenager I was more interested in the horror and um the sexual aspects in the violence than I, than I was in the narrative and in the themes. And as an adult, um, I'm much more interested in the narrative and the themes. It's a little messy to me, but I think that's just because of the, the, the time constraints that he had. Yeah, and you can you can really tell. And I mean, uh, you know, I said before that he, he pulled it together and that in the hands of other directors, it would have been a shit show. And it's, 
it pulls together in the way that it needs to to be a movie but but i do agree and that's something that jumped out at me too the last time watching this is that you can tell that it could have been something more if he would have had the time and maybe the resources and been able to have planned this out more but it's it really shows you can see the seams you can see where it's stitched together Right. And um, again, it's still one of my favorite movies and I would still recommend it to everyone. But I, I mean, just looking at the technical aspects, this movie comes in at 89 minutes. That's that's pretty short. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that I need it to be two hours long, but I could almost see that there, there could have been some of the seams could have been sewn a little bit tighter with maybe just 10 more minutes if this was, you know which is not an unheard of film length, but this movie, I mean, and this movie flies by. I mean, it it's still amazing because it's, it's only 89 minutes, but there's so much packed in here that I need to, I will rewatch this movie, honestly, probably a couple times a year. It's that rewatchable to me. And like I said, I get something new out of it every time. And I can't, give that compliment to many movies. Um, certainly, I have my favorite directors, and I can always kind of get something more out of a rewatch from some of my favorite directors. And, you know, I'm a little biased here because Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors. But, I mean, there's so many different aspects at play here. And, I mean, this whole kind of... Um, Another thing that I got out of this was that we have this very... Uh, one of the more fun characters in this movie is this woman that's kind of... Um, she finds these kind of shows to sh to give to Max for, for Civic TV. Uh, I'm not sure of the character's name off the top of my head. Um, oh, Marsha. Right. And um, so she brings to him this like weird Greek kind of... Uh, softcore orgy kind of show and he's not interested uh, but he asks her to track down Videodrome and she has one of the most um, interesting lines in the entire movie probably one of the most important lines in the entire movie is that she's warning Max not not to get involved in Videodrome because it's just violence no plot for some reason he's drawn to it and I mean, I, there's so many things to say about the fact that how obsessed he is with, you know, <laughs> sex and violence. Um, th that's very telling of a lot of people. But she's got this. Um, she's warning him about Videodrome and she says it's dangerous because it has a philosophy. Now. As a teenager, or someone you know in my twenties, I, I had no idea what that line meant. But reflecting upon it, as an adult, I mean, it's all about philosophy. I mean, in any kind of aspect of our lives, it's politics, media. I mean, philosophy is everywhere. And the philosophy of Videodrome, I mean, I, there's certain interpretations. I'm going to ask you what, you're, what you think the philosophy of Videodrome is. But to me, the philosophy seems to be we have this character. Um, 
who turns out to be the the mastermind of Videodrome, Barry Convex, who's masterminding Videodrome, but is also running. Um, he's one of the heads of the this big optical center. Um, his character was based on Jim Baker, the TV evangelist, which you know. Cronenberg uh, kind of called that one um, about kind of being a skeezy, a skeezy guy behind the scenes, but putting on this nice public persona whose philosophy seems to be that um, Canada and the United States, so basically North America is getting soft and the rest of the world is getting hard. And I don't mean that in a sexual way. Um, I mean, that, and, and I mean that in a, and like, um, they're getting tougher. They're getting meaner. Um, they're getting hungrier. They're getting greedier. And we're kind of sitting on our laurels and Videodrome is kind of a way to toughen up people uh, to get them kind of, hooked on violence and on sex and then to kind of be able to program them um to do whatever they want and you 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 mentioned earlier there's a lot of manchurian candidate vibes here going on i would also say there's a um in a similar vein um an under rated movie uh the parallax view there's kind of those kind of vibes because towards the end, we go from, I mean, that's why it's so tough to talk about this movie. Because we go from a guy that's basically running a cable station, looking for the next hot thing. Thinks he finds it because it's got to be cheap to make. Because he's, you know, there's no set. You know, there's, <laughs> you got one camera filming people getting tortured. And, uh, or women getting, you know tortured and uh you know abused but he thinks he finds it and he ends up becoming kind of a political assassin which is just kind of you know it's kind of a hard turn that this movie takes towards the end because videodrome what it does is that through the signal it's not so much the visuals that you're watching it's the fact that you are attracted to these visuals and then you constantly kind of want to come back to it it's almost addictive like a drug and then it's kind of forming a tumor in you and it's you know it's becoming kind of a cancer within you and i think that in the novelization and in the original script this this talk about actually kind of it being cancer is that that he at some point he was actually going to like his gun morphs into a hand and it was actually going to shoot like liquid cancer droplets um so it's a very disturbing philosophy but it's also one that i wouldn't put past you know certain either political groups or um certain countries in general certain governments to actually be able to manipulate us and program us through media and tv um it's a it's a very scary thought that we could be so programmed and you know this comes into well you're all just a bunch of sheeple and you'll follow whatever kind of uh, lead that you're given but um what are your thoughts on the philosophy of Videodrome? 
I think it's the sort of piss take on the uh, the conservative bent that a lot of the Western world was going through at the time. Uh, uh, I think it's easy for a lot of people to forget just how kind of far to the right uh, American and English culture shifted in the 1980s. And, you know, this was the Reagan-Thatcher age. And I think that uh, Barry Convex and uh, Spectacular Optical are kind of David Cronenberg's raised middle finger to this sort of paternalistic... Uh, approach to society, uh, I can you know really easily see somebody taking the the view that the logical extreme of 1980s conservatism was that they were trying to ideologically purge Western society and uh, get rid of the undesirables and how there'd be this idea that well the undesirables would be the people who were drawn to all of this stuff. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I've always looked at it. I like that. Yeah. I mean, because they, they say that, you know, there, there's some there's some talk about, well, why why are you so hung up on this? I mean, most people I mean, well, I'm not going to say most people, but certain people would would take, you know, a couple seconds look at the Videodrome program. They they wouldn't want anything to do with it. First of all, it looks real. And I think that's something that needs to be um discussed is that it, it's so realistic and it was shot that way actually the first couple days of filming was not actually the kind of videodrome movie but the first couple of days were were to shoot the samurai dream which is a uh, this softcore samurai porn um uh tv show that he's being offered and then um, this kind of Greek myth orgy, and then the actual Videodrome sets, which is kind of just like, it's it's almost like what you see, you know, years later coming out of, you know, these um, Middle Eastern kind of camps where you kind of, I mean, it's just a clay, clay wall, clay floor, clay, you know, this little room and it's basically, you know, people being tortured and it's just, I mean, it almost kind of makes you think, well, what kind of person would be attracted to this? And it's easy to say, well, a sleazy cable, <laughs> cable director looking for a cheap kind of programming. Um, and it actually, it is actually a question that is directed, it's directed at Max in one scene, but I think it's actually a question that's directed at the audience. And um, that woman we were discussing, um, she asked Mask, if if you were to do your own show, if you were to produce your own show, would you do Videodrome? And I think that while the question is being asked of Max, it's actually being asked of the audience because more so now than actually at the time that it came out, now that we're able to produce our own shows, here I am producing a podcast at you know in my living room, and I mean, what kind of show? <laughs> what kind of show am I choosing to do? I'm choosing to do a show that's covering Videodrome, so I, that is all sorts of layers of an onion that I just unwrapped upon myself to say. Wow, this is kind of like if you were if you were given the opportunity to do a show, 
I mean, what kind of show would you do? And obviously I'm not condoning a show that's basically a snuff film, but I, 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 th I just think that this movie asks, I think it asks more questions than, and, and it doesn't, I think that some people find it unsatisfying because it doesn't provide a lot of answers. This is a very, you mentioned there's very existential moments it asks a lot of you, not only as a viewer, but afterwards to kind of sit with the message of Videodrome. And I can see that that's kind of off-putting to certain people. Um, am I making any sort of sense here, Preston, or am I rambling incoherently? Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that's something pretty cool about the movie is that it does leave the viewer to come to their own conclusions. It would have been very easy for David Cronenberg to have come down with this very moralistic violence in the media is bad message. It would have been easy for him to have come down with this like kind of start original Star Trek esque like liberation of man message. Like we need to decide for ourselves what media is going to be and there can't be any strictures on it. But, uh, but both sides are kind of right and both sides are kind of wrong. And it's interesting that there is no real good guy in Videodrome. Uh, the cathode ray mission is willing to manipulate and hijack Max just as readily as Videodrome is. And uh, both sides in this are, you know, kind of corrupt. Both sides do have some valid points. Like, who, who really would be drawn to something like this? And what, what does that speak about a person's, you know, propensity for maybe tr transferring that into real-world violence? So, you know, maybe Spectacular Optical does have a little bit of a point, but then again, at the same time, who is to say who gets to decide what goes on to television and who gets to be the, the moral guardians? Uh, so so it's, it's a very complicated movie in terms of its its message, and I think that that's one of the, another one of the reasons that, uh, that we're still talking about it 40 years later is because it does leave it up to the audience to make those decisions for themselves. Right, and then I think it's still relevant to be talked about, but I think that part of the reason that it kind of, I, I'm only speculating here, I can't speak as a, a moviegoer of the 19, you know, the early 1980s, but this is a movie that doesn't really have a clear hero. There are no... I mean, this movie is all shades of gray. Um, there's no black and white. There's no, Like you said, there's no good, there's no bad. We're kind of... We're left... I mean, our protagonist, for uh, better or for worse, is, is Max... And the way that we're introduced to him is that he's just like a sleazy guy. I mean, he's making... I mean, the way that we're introduced to him is that he's got his secretary that makes wake-up call videos for him, which could be only be, like, you know, seen in some weird sexual way of just, like, I have the authority, you know, I'm the boss, so you're going to make these wake-up call videos for me. He's making coffee in a dirty coffee maker he's eating pizza out of a stale box that looks i don't know it's been sitting on his counter for a couple days at least and he's looking through these like promo shots of of like softcore porn tv shows for his station i mean i mean if you're if you're looking at this in a moral <laughs> morally sound way like is this the kind of person that you want to spend an hour and a half with like is this gonna be your your hero or your anti-hero and i mean he does change throughout the 
the course of the movie, but, I mean, that's because he's developing a tumor and hallucinating. But, I mean, like you said, and I, I, I am still astounded that this movie got made in the year that it got made. I can't imagine. I And it was produced and distributed by Universal. I mean... I can't imagine this pitch meeting. I would love to be on a fly. I would love to be a fly in the wall for this pitch meeting at Universal with David Cronenberg talking about this. Like, how did he pitch this movie to studio executives? And like, what? I, I'm guessing that it was just kind of they kind of gave him a pretty minimal budget, but it was huge for him. But I mean, it was based on the success that he he kind of did as an independent filmmaker. But I mean. This couldn't have been an easy movie to get produced in a main in a in mainstream cinema, and and to get something like this made today, when every other blockbuster is a comic book hero where there's very clear cut heroes and villains. I mean, it's kind of I yeah, mean, I have no clue. And I mean, you know, so speaking to uh, what you said before about knowing how to market it it's like i don't know why they accepted it in the first place when they didn't even know what to do with it once they had it so you, you've got the criteria and you've seen the uh the tr original trailer spots for it oh it's it's, it's like a trip it's it like, is it's it, it's like it's all it's mostly animated if i'm remembering correctly it's yes. it's got an incredibly catchy song which i can't find anywhere i need that that you know, yeah, yeah. No, nobody knows. No. Uh, back, back, back when I was uh, still working at uh, Fangoria, uh, I actually asked some of the old timers if they could poke around. Uh, Tony Timpone and Michael Gingold, if they had any idea, you know, who who the hell did that song? And like, nobody knows. No, like, I literally know. nobody knows who wrote that song, who recorded that song. It is a complete mystery. It's I. It, it's yeah. It's like a. It's like an eighties pop song but like i you like you said you can't find it anywhere and there's like seems to be no information about it it's the only place you can kind of hear the song is in this movie trailer um i i don't think it was i mean the score has been released i don't i'm i'm gonna i'm willing to bet semi-vital parts of my anatomy that howard shore didn't produce it but i just I don't know. It's one of those mysteries that um, I, I don't think it's ever going to be solved. I've seen like videos on it, like the Videodrome trailer song. Um, that's just like a whole, I mean, this movie could lead you down so many different rabbit holes um, in so many different ways. Uh, even in the trailer itself. I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know this. I mean, As visceral and cerebral as most of Cronenberg's movies are, I mean, this one is the most, I would say, is the most heady um, as far as, like, kind of, I mean, talking about certain aspects of society in general and, and of the media. Um, there's so many conversations that, that we could have. Um, but if you don't mind, I, I think as a fan of uh, as a, a long term fan of Fangoria, and um, I I'd like to talk about the um, 
the amazing effects of Rick Baker for this movie. Um, if you could provide any insight, I would love to hear it now because I love um, the effects of this movie. I wish I could say more about that. Really, what I know about the effects is probably exactly what you know from listening to the audio commentary. But uh, I've always thought it's really cool that uh, David Cronenberg talks about how Rick Baker had basically like this kind of like organ or piano and it might have actually been a real organ or piano and how he had these hydraulic tubes hooked up to the keys and for certain effects like the breathing television or very convex exploding with these pulsating tumors mm. he's, he's basically playing a song on this organ piano thing and as he hits each key it's like causing different parts to like pulse and move I've always thought that was a, a really cool way to rig those things up yeah, and I guess one of the more, um, I mean, it's kind of simple now that when you think about it, it's just like air bladders. But I mean, you, you got to, I mean, I just, I just love, yes, people argue, well, they look fake or they look dated. I mean, but to me, I'd much rather have that because you could, you could just throw that same argument at CGI that it looks fake and that eventually it's going to look dated or it already looks dated. I just like the, the practicality. I like the fact that there's a lot of imagination going on here and um, it's, we're not relying so much on computers to generate that. But um, I guess one of the, the big issues that the, the, um, I want to talk a little bit about the censors in um, in Cronenberg and the MPAA, but um, one of the, the bigger issues that they had was that um, there's a part of the movie where he basically, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's it looks like a vagina on his stomach, um, in which video cassettes are inserted, and eventually he, for some reason decides to put his handgun into and then it just disappears um but that's a like the effect i mean the way that they created it i guess they had like one fake arm and then james woods had his his arm behind his back um and then they kind of shot it in like a forced perspective way to kind of to to um to show what's going on. But I mean, all these images of video cassettes being inserted into your stomach, um, it's disturbing. And I, but I just love the, the practicality of it, of the way that they created it. Um, and nowadays it would all be CGI nonsense and it would just be, eh. um, it, there's something that kind of sticks with you. Um, when you kind of see it done practically, I think, um, just because you're... Yeah, because it's real. Right. It's there on screen. They're actually interacting with an actual puppet or with an actual, uh, you know, latex apparatus. And I think that lends it an extra layer of verisimilitude because you're actually seeing the actor interacting with something physically present the way they would if this were real. Exactly, right. And... um did you um are you familiar with uh Cronenberg's cameo in this movie? Yeah, that the, he is the the guy wearing the headpiece. Right. Because apparently James Woods was too freaked out, I think, 
uh, I think he's claustrophobic, and uh, he he couldn't wear the headset for as long as David Cronenberg needed him to, and they've got similar builds and similar long faces, and so that's actually Cronenberg wearing the headset for that long shot pulling back from him sitting in the chair. Right, yeah, This is a, there's a scene where... Um... Barry Convicts wants to, I mean, th this is just a fascinating machine that he's created that he wants to kind of capture and um, a hallucination, which is just, I mean, that could be a whole movie on its own. It's kind of like this, like, one scene in this Cronenberg movie, uh, which is, could easily be the basis for an entire movie about a mad scientist that's that captures hallucinations with this weird device that he puts on his head. But, um... It's not that he was claustrophobic. Uh, Cronenberg mentions that he said that Woods at the time was very paranoid for, so, for some reason, just about things in general. Um, but he became extremely paranoid about putting this thing on his head because he was convinced that he was going to be electrocuted. And even... Uh. So the prop designer um, actually, like, had, like, put the machine on her own head and, like, was standing in a bathtub of water to kind of like increase the odds and then like turned on the machine and nothing happened and so like the you know the thinking was well listen this lady is standing standing in water wearing this this headpiece she's not going to get electrocuted you're going to be sitting in a chair you know it's completely dry uh you'll be fine but no what's apparently uh, this Cronenberg said that um you know, he's, he's, he just said, he called him Jimmy. He said, Jimmy, Jimmy just wasn't going to do it. So, um, uh, yeah, but, uh, there, there you go. Uh, nice cameo moment. And, um, Cronenberg kind of makes it, he's got a very dry sense of humor. He makes a very dry joke about how it's not his best Hitchcock moment on, uh, on cellular, <laughs> but, um, um, Alfred Hitchcock, of course, known for making a cameo in um, all, if not most, if not all of his movies. So, um, yeah, there's there's just so much to talk about with this movie. Um, are you familiar with the various different endings at all? Yeah, so I know, and there's even a, a screenshot floating around out there of uh, a take from an alternate ending. I don't know if it was actually filmed and this is a still from a filmed scene or if this was just uh, test shots. But there, there was, I know that there was different endings that were supposed to take place on the Videodrome set. And in one of them, uh, it's like everybody who's been killed in the film is on the Videodrome set. And that's the, the scene that I've seen a still from where they're all kind of lined up in a row, just kind of like standing stationary. It's a really eerie shot. And then mm. I know there's another one where I think it's just Max and Nikki and maybe Masha or Bianca. And I don't know if they designed the, uh, the special effects... Uh, apparatuses for this but like they were supposed to like start taking their clothes off and they were all supposed to have like the the, the vaginal slits in them and then like these kind of like penile tentacles were supposed to come out of them and uh, david cronenberg is described as kind of like this new flesh orgy uh <laughs> I, I know of those two at least i think that there may have been other ones this this is uh area of the film where you can really tell that he was making things up on the fly and just trying to figure out how to end it 
and I'm not 100% certain why he ended up settling on the one that he uh, chose, if it was because he just preferred it that way, a little bit more uh, simplistic and uh, definitive and ending with Max killing himself, or if they just couldn't get the special effects to work with those uh, tentacles. I know that uh, he, he was really... Uh, really excited about that it really seems like that's the the ending that he really fell in love with yeah i want to talk about that particular ending in a second but i do know that the ending that we are given was apparently um james woods idea um so i don't know if cronenberg like you said we're, we're dealing like he's he's coming down to um the the deadline like he needs to have a fit like he needs to have a finished movie by a certain date like it's it's like contracted that way um and unlike the previous Cronenberg movies that were very scripted and scheduled and laid out in a very um easy to follow man manner for um for everybody involved and I I know that Cronenberg himself was saying that it was very confusing for a lot of people on the set of this movie to talk, uh, I mean, to, to, to know what they were doing day to day because it was changing so often. And he said that people that were new to him were confused, but he said that people that had previously worked with him were even more confused because this is not the way that he typically shoots a movie. So, I, yeah, I think the ending in particular for me is very, I mean, he ends up like in, I mean, after he's programmed to kill Bianca Oblivion, he goes to kill Bianca Oblivion, she is able to reprogram him, he goes and kills his, um, his renegade pirate satellite tech, um, Harlan, and it kills him in a very graphic manner. Um, one of the more probably, well, no, I think Barry, Barry Convicts' death is probably more graphic. Um, uh, then goes and kills Barry Convicts in front of all these people, in front of, um, uh, I guess it's an, an optical convention. He's de debuting, I mean, it's a huge set piece. Um, and he's debuting, I guess, their spring line or their fall line of new, uh, designer eyewear. And, um, I, for some reason had re remembered at some point in the time that I thought that he killed Barry Convicts and then commuted, committed suicide on stage in front of everyone. But that's, I was misremembering. And this was years ago before I got the, um, the the, the Blu-ray here that I've that I've rewatched numerous times. Um, he ends up like in this shipyard, this like, abandoned shipyard, and he ends up kind of like in the uh, in the tank of an old uh, an old washed up boat or something, and he's uh, he's just like lying around in this filthy mattress, and then like he wakes up or he comes out of one hallucination. There's a giant TV in front of him. And we get the return of Deborah Harry, and she's talking about how to, like, 
he needs to let his body die in order to evolve and become part of the new flesh. Um, and then he, we get a very definitive ending where he puts this kind of mesh that has become his hand and um, the gun that he has has just become this melded kind of monstrosity. He puts it to his head and says, long live the, the new flesh and then dies um and then we fade to black but yeah it's very interesting to me that i think i i i, I almost think the most it's the least cronenberg of all the endings that you just mentioned is the one that we got i i kind of see that i mean in a more typical cronenberg fashion we would have gotten the new flesh orgy that's the one that i was familiar with i did not know about the one the uh the screenshot with all the victims of videodrome lined up i'm gonna have to track that down because i'd like to see that but he kind of revisits these tent tentacle like entities yeah it was supposed to be um james woods deborah harry and then uh bianco oblivion um all three of them and they all had these like new the new flesh kind of crevices and they were all kind of like sticking their fingers it was a very sexual kind of um thing but he kind of revisits these tentacle like aspects in um naked lunch and in and in existence um um but i i what do you think about the end the ending that we got just the the one that we got not opposed to the the theoretical ones that we could have gotten D does it work for you it really i mean it works because it's it kind of organically flows from everything we've seen up to that point but i mean it's it's okay it's it feels like the end it feels like an ending written by somebody who was under the gun and just needed to wrap things up and just having max off himself after all of this feels like okay the movie needs to end how can i end the movie will i kill the main character boom he's dead the end uh i really it it, it feels like that kind of ending uh i've never been 100 percent satisfied with it no no me either um like I said, I it to me, I mean, just personally, it's it seems like the least Cronenberg of all the endings. Um, yeah. But I I think I, I there's some very I mean this movie is influential in in two movies in potent in particular to me. Uh, I kind of see this. I, I think a good double feature, at least I consider it a good double feature is this an existence because um have you seen existence preston oh yeah and i mean i've been thinking about that as we've been talking about this because uh it, it really feels like that for the rest of his career david cronenberg has been periodically revisiting the ideas from videodrome uh history of violence existence uh to a lesser extent kind of in eastern promises but there's all these ideas about the influence of the media and our relationship with violence and the ability of media to shape our reality and situations to shape our reality that he he just keeps going back to and revisiting the the narrative well that he really first tapped with this movie 
Yeah, it it almost seems to me is like um, Videodrome kind of tackles um, TV um, just it, it, as it was in the eighties. So you know, not involving what it prophesized with the internet. But then I he I think this it, it bookends quite well with a movie like Existen, which examines a lot of similar ideas, much less. Um, I don't think it's handled as well, but I mean, maybe that's just because I'm not so much into video games, but it's almost like the, vi I almost say that Existence is like the video game version of like, well, if you were doing like the SAT things, like Videodrome is to TV as Existence is to video games, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, Existence almost feels like David Cronenberg trying to remake Videodrome for the 90s. Uh, I think that's a reason that I didn't really ever jive with it because it does revisit such similar themes and it does such similar things. And really, I don't feel have anything that new to say. It's almost like David Cronenberg thought to himself, well, TV was the big flashpoint of media in the 80s and now it's video games. And so he almost feels like he remade his own movie. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing Existence, and I it's it's almost like a day. At times, I got like a deja vu. It was like this this seems really familiar to me. Um, uh, but there's also um, are you familiar at all with his son's movies, Brandon Cronenberg? I only seen one. Is it is it antiviral? Is it called? Yes, he made a movie called yeah. Antiviral. I actually just. For those that tuned in, I did a future cult classics movie where um, we came up with movies from the past 10 years that we think are going to be future cult hits. And that was one antiviral that I threw on there. Um, but his his second movie is called Possessor, which I haven't seen yet. But from the trailer and like from the synopsis, it draws heavily on kind of Videodrome's things because the possessor in this case, I believe it's one an individual that's able to possess other people but does so um, for assassinations, um, which is kind of like the, the last third of Videodrome here is we kind of getting... The, Max is pretty much like hijacked by technology. Um, he's basically become like, he's almost like uh, a killing machine at this point. He's he's a programmed assassin, very similar to the you know like the Manchurian candidate. Um, so I I think that I I can't say that this movie I can't really see the influence of this movie seeping so much into to modern day movies. Maybe if like gave it a lot more thought, but I, I, I think it's one of Cronenberg's most underrated and underappreciated movies. Um, it definitely has its flaws and its faults that we um, we talked about, and, and in particular the ending. Like you, I never really was very satisfied with that ending. It it, it seemed to be leading up to something more. Um, I kind of wanted to see that next level. I kind of just need just five more minutes after after he supposedly kills himself like what what happens does he ascend into like this new flesh does he become something 
uh, different, um, something new. I, I, I just that's what this movie leaves me wanting, you know, which is good. It's not there's nothing wrong with a movie leaving you wanting more. Um, that being said, you know, I, I do wish that we kind of got something more um, suited, I guess, for the rest of this movie. I, I, I think that it, it was just leading up to something more than just a simple suicide. I mean, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's been dis- you know, discussing all of these very heady themes and, you know, about ideology, violence in the media, yada, yada, yada. And then it's just, oh, well, he killed himself, the end. It's, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a resolution. It doesn't even really feel so much like an ending. It just kind of feels like the movie stops. Yes, yeah. There's a lot of movies that I, all of it, you're just like, what? Um, that's it? I, there's got to be one more scene. I mean, it, it, what what's going on here? Um, but I got to say, you know, and I think maybe that's part of the reason that I wasn't as drawn to this movie initially uh, when I first saw it. Um, but it's it's something now that I think it's it's just so relevant and it's so prolific. It's visceral. It's cerebral. It's. It's a movie, I, and I just want to quote something from James Woods here, is that um, he's handing back the, the Betamax to Bianco Oblivion, and he goes, watch out, it bites. Um, and I kind of I, I kind of think that, that that line almost kind of sums up Videodrome, is, is that a movie that w- it will sink its teeth into you, and what you do with that is kind of up to you. Um, but... Um, I just have some interesting uh, random trivia here. Um, Andy Warhol called Videodrome a clockwork orange of the 1980s. I don't see the comparison, but that's just me. Um, I think that I I, I guess there's themes of violence, um, but... um, like I get it. I, I, I think it's it's more tonal. I okay. think that A Clockwork Orange captured something anarchic and something about the, 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 the human psyche and about the time in which it was produced. I think that A Clockwork Orange in a lot of ways is kind of like the, the thing that everybody feared or the flip side of Swinging London. It's mm. like little Swinging London. And I feel like Videodrome is this idea of like what's the worst that could come out of technology and the media in the early '80s. So I think it's it's more about a zeitgeist that it captured. Okay, all right. I I could now that yeah I I, I just needed a little bit more context. But now that you you mention it, yeah, um, it's it's kind of like a the flip side kind of deal. Um, um, but I mean they're both prolific movies in their own right. Um. And I guess now thinking about it, it does make a lot more sense with the whole um, reprogramming of Malcolm McDowell's character in A Clockwork Orange, um, making him desensitized to violence. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's that's a more apt 
uh, quote that I gave credit to. My apologies to the late Andy Warhol. Um, yeah, there, I can definitely see it now. Um, um, definitely, definitely. Um, wow, both movies make you think. Um, both movies I could talk about for hours, but one of the rules we have here on the show is that um, we never let the episode run longer than the, the movie itself. So I'm going to give the final words here to my very special guest, Preston Fossil. Please check out um, his Twitter. I'm going to have all the links for him and his book in the description. Please show Preston some love. Um, I appreciate him coming on the show and uh, helping me discuss this. But the last couple minutes here, um, final thoughts on this movie, Preston. It's a classic. It's it's fantastic. It still holds up. I get something new out of it every time. Uh, people ask me, oh, you're a horror writer. What's your favorite horror movie? And I'm a pretentious asshole, so I say, well, I don't have a favorite horror movie. I have six. <laughs> and Videodrome is one of what I call my, my sacred six horror movies. It's, it's just an amazing film. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to see it. The Criterion release is really great, and that's the uh, completely uncut version that uh, doesn't have any of the MPAA cuts in it. Uh, even if you can't get your hands on that one, just get your hands on a copy of Videodrome and check it out. Well, I'm going to break my own rule here because you just mentioned something that I wanted to mention um, just very quickly. But, the yeah, the MPAA made a lot of cuts to this movie, and I, I saw a very interesting interview. Um, it's actually available on the Criterion. It's a roundtable interview of um, Mick Garris, who would later go on to become a writer and director, uh, but at the time was just a reporter, interviews John Carpenter, John Landis, and David Cronenberg. And they talk about the MPAA, and they talk about censorship, and they talk about cuts made the movies. Something that I was not... Um, completely aware of, but in Canada, the censor board will simply cut the movie, for, well, not for you, but they will just cut your movie. At the MPAA, you have to submit your movie. They'll tell you what's wrong with it. They'll tell you what cuts they suggest that you make to get an appropriate rating. In Canada, the censor board will simply cut your movie. Now, that's I could see why Cronenberg was like, he had a more favorable view of the MPAA than uh, John Landis and John Carpenter did. And that's simply because in Canada, uh, the censorship is even tougher. That's that's brutal. You don't even get a say. They just simply cut the movie for you. So that's that's a whole different discussion that we could have at some point. But I definitely in, invite you all to check out Videodrome if you haven't seen it in a while it like Preston said it's worth a rewatch it's a classic it still holds up today I would say that it's probably more important today than it was actually at the time it's one of those movies that you, you could just have a ball with because even if you don't want to get into the deep themes and philosophy that's held within this movie it's still just visually and uh, just an absolutely amazing movie. But I just want to thank my very special guest, Preston Fossil. Check out the dailygrindhouse.com and check out Landis, the story of a real man on 42nd Street. 
that's a that's a book that I'm gonna have to pick up myself because the whole all the the stories that I've heard uh, around Forty Second Street um, of interest me to no to no end. So I just want to thank you all here for joining me on another Cult Film Companion podcast episode. Tune in next week where we'll cover another great movie that doesn't get the recognition that it deserves and just needs some more love and the, the spotlight put on it one last time. Thank you all for tuning in.